0: Have our second Bible reading now uh, and so that is from Romans chapter 2 verse 17 and we'll be reading down to chapter 3 verse 20. Uh, so on this pew Bible uh, it starts on page 1178. Uh, it's also on the screen uh, to my left your right. Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written... God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code, and circumcision are a lawbreaker a man is not a jew if he is only one outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical no a man is a jew if he is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the written code such a man's praise is not from men but from god What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, And as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin.
1: Well friends, this evening we're going to look at this passage. It's a long passage but it is a heavy passage and uh, we really do need um, God's help with this. There is an outline as well, if you don't have one, that will help you with tonight. Um, But let's turn to God in prayer. We do need to come to this passage and to God with great humility. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will humble our hearts as we reflect on these uh, deep uh, yet damning words of all humanity. So we pray, Lord, that you help us to see where we do stand and what we must do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, are you a a person who is a half-empty type of person or a half-full type of person? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? What do you think? You see, being an optimist can, in fact, be quite dangerous, especially if it's just wishful thinking. But on the other hand, if being a pessimist, that can in fact be quite debilitating, especially if it doesn't reflect reality. And so what are you? Are you an optimist or you're a pessimist? Well, Australians, culturally, we are known to be optimists, right? What's our tagline, our slang? No worries, she'll be right, mate. We know that, right? Now, for those of you who are migrants, internationals, uh, it's not talking about a girl, It's Australian slang for it will be okay in the end. Uh, There's a famous song written by a famous songwriter in Australia, Slim Dusty, uh, titled She'll Be All Right, Mate. And so how do you live? Is that how you would live, being an optimist? You know, when it comes to your studies, your work, your relationships, she'll be right, mate, it'll be okay, don't have to work too hard, don't have to study too hard, she'll be right, mate. Now, I personally am more of a pessimist. It's perhaps uh, of my upbringing from how I was raised by my parents. Uh, I don't only think of the worst case scenario. I think it will be worse than that. So, for example, especially if it comes to our kids, you better wash your hands before you have dinner. Otherwise, whatever germs were on your fingers, that will go into your mouth. You'll get sick. You'll get some disease. You'll get gangrene and you'll die wash your hands. Or make sure you, you buckle up when we're in the car. Otherwise, if I have to stop immediately, you'll fly out the windscreen, you'll hit your head, the birds will eat your flesh and you'll die. <laughs> buckle your seatbelt. Or when you're outside on the front, Playing ball, don't chase you've heard this before don't chase the ball if it crosses passes the road don't even pass half the nature strip otherwise you might trip over your head will hang over the gutter a car will come over crush your head your brains will splatter everywhere and you'll die i'm slightly a pessimist but what about when it comes to thinking about the judgment of god when jesus returns are you an optimist at that point Or are you a pessimist at that point now I suspect most people whether they believe in God or not whether they believe in heaven or not whether they believe in anything or not most people I suspect are optimists when it comes to heaven and hell when it comes to the judgment of God I mean if you go to enough funerals and you listen to enough eulogies you're always left thinking that person must be in heaven But you see, that is the great danger. That is the great danger. That is where the danger lies because it could all just be wishful thinking. It could all just be false optimism. And that is dangerous when we come to think about our eternity. You see, we do not want to base our eternity on optimism. And so in our passage today, that's the type of optimism we see. We, We see three things my knowledge will save me my religion will save me my heritage will save me she'll be right mate when i meet god but then what does god think well let's have a look keep your bibles open we'll work our way through firstly this optimism my knowledge will save me you see for a jewish person they have the laws of god they know the laws of god they know the true God of the world. Not a fake God, not an idol, but the true God of the world. And knowing the laws of God is of great boast for the Jewish people. And that's what we see in the first two verses, 17 and 18. Have a look. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. You see, the Jewish people, because they have the law, they are convinced... We are the people out of order world. We are the people who are to be a guide to the blind. We are the people who are to be the light to those in the dark. We are to, to be the people who are to be teachers of children. You see, they prided themselves in having the law, and they still do. In fact, they honor the law deeply. Now I remember visiting a a synagogue in high school on an excursion. This is years ago. I remember how differently they honored. The physical law, the physical Bible, their Bible, the Torah, that's what they call it. Their law. They honor that deeply. Now with our Bibles, what do we do? We scribble all over it, we highlight it, we underline it, we mark it, we put on a coffee table, we get it stained by coffee, and when it's old, the pages are falling out, we throw it away, we buy a new Bible. That's okay for us Christians. But not a Jewish person. They would never do such a thing to the physical Torah the physical scrolls you see a a special place must be designated for storing the torah it's seen as that important even in the home and if you're in the same room as the torah you must dress appropriately you must behave respectfully which means then that you cannot store the torah the law in the room where you're running around in your speedos and playing playstation it can't be in that type of room it should always be held upright and when it's carried from one place to another those nearby must rise remain standing until the torah reaches its destination that is how they honor their law in the synagogue people face it they kiss its mantle and the parchments the scrolls you can't touch it with your fingers we we touch we we crunch up all the pages of the bible but they can't touch it with their fingers they have to use a stick it's treated like royalty And the Jews, they memorise it. They work hard at memorising it. But you see what Paul is making here? The point he's making is that your knowledge of the law will not save you. Your possession of the Torah will not give you any immunity. What's the point of having it if you do not obey it? And so look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? But then worse than that, this hypocrisy brings dishonor to God. Do you see that? Verse 23. You who boast in the law, you, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so Paul's making a simple point here. Your knowledge, you know a lot, good on you, but that will not save you. That cannot save you. Knowing about God cannot save. Even the devil knows God. He's not saved. And if you think about that principle, it's really no different for us Christians today. Knowing about God, knowing about Jesus alone cannot save. Even if I've read, as a a good Christian, the Calvin's Institutes. Even if I've gone to Bible college and I've learned Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. Even if I've memorized parts of Scripture. That might give me the appearance of being saved but that knowledge does not save you see it's false optimism to to rock up on judgment day before god and to say well god look how much i've learned about you about your words about the creeds about the scriptures i've learned i know so much god and to think that that is enough to save us you see Paul is saying no knowledge cannot save it is not enough Well, if my knowledge can't save me, then maybe my religion will save me. Maybe I can rely on my religious efforts and duties. That's my optimism. You see, for the Jewish people, their religion is, in fact, quite obvious. They used to have the temple, the physical temple. They, They used to have their priesthood and their sacrifices. Their religion was obvious. But today, though it's all gone, they still have an obvious sign of their religion, a very important mark of their covenant relationship with god their special relationship with god and that is the circumcision that's what paul goes on to speak about you see circumcision was a sign in the old testament of belonging to god of being among the covenant family of god it it remains a physical sign of that covenant relationship for the jewish people and and what's the circumcision well we've been reading through genesis uh, in our family devotion for a few months now early this year we read to that bit where abraham was told to circumcise himself and his family and his household and he did this is family devotion with our three kids 10 8 and 6 the kids didn't know what circumcision was what do you say as parents and so we had to explain in fact yvonne had to explain that night and we explained or she explained in the most age-appropriate language possible I- yvonne just bravely said well it's a sign we're jewish boys have their, the foreskin of their thing cut off, of their, you know, the word. <laughs> Our older two kids, they've done their anatomy studies, they know what it is, and they were shocked. They were shocked. They were disgusted by it. And that's because they didn't really understand it. They said, cut your four, what? Cut into four pieces. And I can understand why they were shocked, but that was, we told him what it was after that. You see, for the Jewish people, the physical circumcision gave them great confidence in their salvation. They thought that's enough. That's the mark, that's our religious duty done. In fact, in rabbinic teachings, they believe that circumcised men do not descend into gehenna, which is another word for hell. And the circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. That that is enough. Being circumcised is enough to keep you out of hell. That's what they believe. Their religious duties. But he, Paul, uses this very important Jewish rite to show that religion cannot save. Religious efforts cannot save. Religious rites and ceremonies and rituals cannot save. You can have order bells and smokes and whistles you like. It cannot save. You see, there's no point of just looking like a law-abiding Jew outwardly, but not one inwardly. That's what Paul goes on to say. Look at verses 25 and 26. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Do you see there? What Paul was interested in was the inner circumcision, not just the outward physical sign. And if you think about it for us today as Christians, it's really no different. That principle still applies. I mean, if I wear a necklace with a cross around my neck, if I put a a sticker of a fish on my car, if I place crosses around my home, if I leave Bibles around my place, if I can sing Kumbaya around the campfire, if I say, Shine Jesus Shine is my favorite Christian song, even if I've been baptized, I have the appearance of being so religious. I have the appearance of being saved, but religious appearances cannot save. And if you think about it, the devil actually doesn't really care if anyone is so committed to church, reads the Bible heaps, as long as they don't apply it to their life. Francis Chan, an American pastor, he, he said this. To call someone a Christian simply because he does some Christiany thing is giving false comfort to the unsaved. You see how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to base our salvation on the physical outward signs. You see, what is required here is genuine internal change and not an ex- external empty sign. And so circumcision or baptism are empty signs if they are not matched by the inner reality they symbolize that is a heart that is circumcised that is a life that is united with christ and so paul makes that point 28 and 29 a person is not a jew who is one only outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical no a person is a jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the written code such a person's praise is not from other people but from god and so if our outward and inward do not match that dishonors god that's hypocrisy whereas obedience when it does match it welcomes god's praises but we see here it's quite clear isn't it knowledge cannot save religion cannot save well if not that maybe my heritage will save me maybe my heritage you see this is a bigger deal than we may be aware of for the jewish people uh, amongst the jews back then and even today there is great pride in being a jew in being the physical descendant of abraham and in one sense rightly so you see out of all the nations of the world it was this nation that god chose to graciously bless it was this nation that god entrusted with the law it was this nation that the Messiah came from you see sometimes as Gentiles we forget to realize that and recognize that it is something for us most of us here are Gentiles if not all we need to appreciate that they were special and so for for a Jewish person maybe my Jewish heritage will save me surely there must be some advantage in being a Jewish person and so that's their question here have a look at verse 1 of chapter 3 now what advantage then is there in being a jew or what value is there in circumcision and so paul says verse 2 much in every way first of all they have been entrusted with the very words of god that's the responsibility of the jewish nation of the nation of israel and they, they have in fact done an excellent job in preserving the old testament for us but now what we see in these next few verses It's a bit like what, you know, at a conference or at a speech, what hecklers do. They scream out their their responses. They heckle the speaker. And so in a sense, that's what we see here. Some dissatisfied Jews, they heckle Paul. They say three things. Firstly, they're saying that God has failed them. Paul speaking, they're heckling. God has failed us. If every Jew is not saved, then God has failed. Secondly, they say, God is unjust in judging us. We're the Jewish people. How can God judge us? They're heckling. And the third one, they're saying, well, we should continue to sin because if we sin more, it makes God look better anyway. And so what we see here in these few verses is it's a bit like a child throwing a tantrum. If being Jewish is not enough, then that is not right and I'm not happy. But then Paul responds, The first heckle, it was not God who failed, they have failed. Look at verse 4, by no means, that is not on your life, not in a thousand years. Let God be true and every man liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God has always been faithful to what he has promised. They're the ones who have failed and their heritage cannot save them. Now, Paul responds to the second heckle. God has every right to judge the world, even them, though they are Jewish. Have a look at verse 5. They say, well, God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. Paul responds, certainly not. Not on your life. If that were so, how would God judge the world? And now the third heckle. Paul responds here. If you want to continue to sin then you'll be condemned and your heritage will not save you at all. And so verse 8, if anyone says, let us do evil, that good may result, Paul says, their condemnation is deserved. And so he's really just making that point clear. You're of the Jewish heritage. Well, that is good, that is precious, but it's no guarantee of anything. Having the heritage alone cannot save. It gives no immunity. And so, if we think about this once again, this principle applies again to us today as Christians. You see, we might come from a long line of Christians in our ancestry. I might have a Christian heritage, four generations of Christians in my family, grew up in the church, went to Sunday school, youth group, Bible study, went to order Christian groups on university, did lots of Christian stuff and Christian activities joined the church did stack of stuff i might even call myself evangelical i might even call myself reform i'm part of that heritage i might even call myself presbyterian surely that's enough but you see that's just giving me the appearance of being saved. but heritage does not save it's false optimism once again if i rock up on judgment day and say to god look god i come from a long line of christians and to think that that is enough to save heritage is not enough and so what do we have here if we think about this it's in fact quite depressing nothing from us can save us knowledge cannot save religion cannot save heritage cannot save so what's the conclusion of the matter well paul in these final verses he sums up the first three chapters of romans This is the predicament of all humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. They are the same, in the same boat. And that is, nothing can save. That is the conclusion of the matter. Nothing from within creation can save us. Nothing from within us can save us. And that is because of total, complete depravity of all humanity. Look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. That's the conclusion of all of this. And now what we see following is a series of Old Testament quotes. It describes the pervasiveness of sin. It affects every inch of the human person. It affects every aspect of the human person. Now, Our mind is affected our emotions, our conscience, our will, our heart, our speech, our practice is actually all corrupted by sin. And Paul sums that up in these famous verses, verses 10 to 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. That's a bold statement. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. or have turned away. They have together become worthless. I mean, that's God's verdict on this world. You are all worthless. You have all turned away. You do not understand. And it goes on. There is no one who does good, not even one. They are damning verses. And then look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, these are damning verses. God's devastating exposure of universal sin and guilt. If we reflect on that deeply enough it is depressing it is so depressing we can't do anything we can't know enough we can't just try to be good enough we can't depend on our heritage we can't do anything but god is telling us here whether we like it or not this is our biggest problem the biggest problem in this world is not global warming it's not overpopulation it's not world poverty it's not even terrorism They are big problems but they're not the biggest it is this It is sin, and it is the judgment for sin. The problem of every single human being leaves no room for optimism at all. Instead, what it does is that it silences us. Whatever race, culture, background, religion, we all stand guilty before God. It silences us, leaves us without excuse, and no escape. Look at the final verses, 19 to 20 now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to god therefore no one is declared righteous in the sight by observing the law rather through the law we become conscious of sin so what do we have here knowledge cannot save religion cannot save heritage cannot save nothing can save that's our passage It's a heavy one, and it should weigh heavy on our hearts. And so what do you think this passage then does for your optimism? What do you reckon, you optimistic people? What do you think this passage does? It seems like by the end of this passage, any glimmer of hope, gone. Any hint of better things to come, gone. Any flicker of light, just gone. It's like the terminal diagnosis from the doctor. It's like the final guilty verdict from the judge. It is the total rejection of God. And it should leave us with a sinking, helpless feeling. That is what we're meant to feel from this. Now I wonder whether that was what you came to church this evening hoping to hear. How bad you are, how bad I am. Hopes dashed, optimism gone, leaving you worse than a pessimist morally bankrupt totally depraved completely hopeless in god's eyes i mean we don't want to hear that do we as a church we we didn't come to church to hear that did we it's very easy to skip over these chapters in romans isn't it so gloomy and so dark and so depressing and that's in fact what many churches do they in fact skip over chapters like this in the bible is in fact what many so-called christians do they just don't speak about these things You see, there are, in fact, churches in our country, in our state, even in our city that decidedly not speak of sin, of judgment, or of hell. Those vocabulary are out in the church. They don't use it at all. Last year, here in Melbourne, I heard a Christian leader, a Christian leader in our city. He said he didn't like to use the word sin or sinners. He says it's just too negative, too depressing. Instead, he wants us to have, have a more optimistic view, optimistic outlook of ourselves. He avoided those words like a plague. But is that what Romans teaches us? Another Christian pastor, this is a, a very famous pastor of a big mega church. Thousands of people flock to his church each week. He literally teaches millions of people around the world through his podcasts, through his books, and many love him. And his teachings is around this. It's all about casting off negative thinking and replacing it with a, with being in a victorious life, being a victor. You know, these are some of the things he has said. He said, "The more you talk about negative things in your life, the more you call them in. Speak victory, not defeat. That's the language of his teaching. Be optimistic. I mean, that's just Christianized pop psychology, isn't it?" Or this is he said, to fulfill your destiny, stay true to your heart. I mean we hear that all the time in pop psychology. But what is the human heart like in our passage? It is depraved. And so to be true to yourself is actually not good. And, And he also said this, there is a winner in you. I mean, this is a pastor who teaches millions around the world. There is a winner in you. You were created to be successful, to accomplish your goals, to leave your mark on this generation. You have greatness in you. The key is to get it out. Now, how does that go with what we read today in Romans? I'm not sure how it matches up with Jesus who says, who calls us to carry our cross and to follow him daily. Not about greatness, about being humble and being servant of all. How do those teachings align with what we hear here in Romans. I mean, if there's any optimism in our own thoughts, in our own efforts, if you have any optimism about yourself at all, it's in fact false optimism. It is false. And that is dangerous to rely on false optimism. In fact, it is cruel to be taught that, to be fooled by that, and to believe that. You see, if I've got terminal cancer I don't want to be told that it's just a simple cold just believe in yourself take a panadol and she'll be all right I mean that will be deadly serious I'll be dead if I've got cancer I need surgery to to cut out the cancer I need uh, chemotherapy to kill the cancer I need help from the outside not positive thinking or if there's grave danger ahead for our kids it's a life and death situation I don't want to say to them she'll be all right That will be false optimism. That will be wishful thinking. That's false confidence, and that's dangerous. That's delusional. Instead, I'll do anything I can to tell them of the danger, to turn them away from the danger. See, false optimism is deadly dangerous when it comes to our eternity, especially when it comes to our eternity. And so instead of false optimism, what do we need? What do we want? We want to be told the truth, don't we? of where we stand before God. We want to be given a correct diagnosis, not just take a panadol and you'll be okay. I want to be told what God thinks. And that's what we have in this passage. This is what God thinks of this world. There is no one righteous, not even one. A great theologian, J.I. Packer, he says this of human depravity. No one is as bad as he might be, given the opportunity you'll just be as sinful and then it goes on to say no one is as good as he should be we can have often too high of a view of ourselves and we can't have too low of a view of ourselves and so you see if we understand this text correctly if we understand what God says here correctly then we understand how low we really are we can't get any lower as people we can't get any more hopeless as people. We can't get any more pessimistic as people. We're in the black, dark mess, and it is hopeless. But I spent a whole whole sermon telling you that. Why? So that we don't remain standing, so that we won't remain standing on our knowledge that I know so much God, so that we won't remain standing on our religion. I've done so much. I've been baptized, Lord so that we won't remain standing on our heritage. I come from a line of Christians thought. No, rather than remain standing after this passage, we should be brought to our knees in genuine humility, just like that tax collector in the Gospels. Not willing to even lift his eyes up to heaven, he was so uh, so down, but he beat his breast and he cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There is absolutely nothing I can do to save myself. This is how bad it is. I have absolutely no resources to save myself. I'm in desperate need. I'm in need for mercy. And so he turns to God in genuine humility. You see, if that is us, where we don't stand now on what we've done, what we think, what we can do, but we understand this passage correctly and we fall to our knees before God, then we've understood this passage correctly. If that is us, then we've understood what God thinks correctly about us. You see, now that we've painted the world in pitch black, imagine a world all pitch black and gloomy. That is what we're meant to see from this passage. It is hopeless. It is despairing. But then God does something about it. In this black picture, a sparkling, brilliant diamond drops. God has provided an answer to our hopeless mess. God has provided an answer to a despairing mess hopeless mess god has given us solution and it's not try harder god has given us his son jesus christ to be the solution to our problem to be the savior of our souls the one who went to the cross for us you see when we understand the problem of our depravity then it makes sense of the solution of god in jesus and when we do understand that we don't have to be pessimistic at all our life changes around. When we understand that, we don't have to rely on false optimism at all. Our life changes around. What changes is that when we understand that and believe that and cry to God for mercy, we end up having not optimism, not pessimism, but we have genuine, complete confidence. Turns around. No guesswork now. No wishful thinking. Complete confidence. We have genuine blessed assurance as we'll sing later, we'll have genuine hope because in the end it's not just wish of thinking anymore in the end for those who believe what god has done in his son shall really be all right we can have that hope because god says so and god has made it so through his son on the cross for us that diamond will drop not this week but next week when we come back to the next bit. But now we want to see the world pitch black, but there is a diamond that is dropping, and that will drop next week when we consider the cross of Christ. But I'll end now with this quote that helps us put it all in perspective. John Stott, he said, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We have to recognize the darkness, the blackness of our sin our depravity before we can come to understand the glorious cross of Christ let's pray